Welcome to session two of Christ Community Church's new members class uh, entitled The Glorious Gospel. And the purpose of this session, if you could follow along in your outline, is to understand and appropriate the gospel of God's grace as it applies to our initial experience of salvation. It's important to note that no one is born a Christian. It's something we become. Um, We must be born again, as uh, John's Gospel in chapter 3 says. The Bible describes this experience in a number of ways. Being born again, becoming new creations, being rescued from the kingdom of darkness, being saved, um, etc. They all express the fact that we were born sinners, separated from God, condemned to eternal punishment, and needing God's intervention in our lives. Understanding these truths and applying them by faith is the crucial foundation for Christian living. I want to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and enjoy this as it's being read to you. And you can read along in your Bibles. It's a precious section of Scripture. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for God's blessing on our time here um, as we listen to this message. God, I just pray that you would bless the hearer of this message as we go through this outline. Touch our hearts with the glorious gospel. Thank you so much that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ. And I pray, God, that we would be able to see more clearly as a result of this session the immeasurable riches of your grace in kindness toward us and your son, Christ Jesus, more fully. So I pray for that, and I thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much again for um, going through the new members class. We're so thankful for you, and we're praying for you, and uh, so excited uh, to have you in our church. Let's look at point one in the outline, our need for salvation Salvation means to be made whole, to be delivered, made safe, preserved from destruction. But we need to ask the question, what do we need to be saved from? And the answer is twofold. We need to be saved from our own sin, and we need also to be saved from God's wrath against our sin. No one can gain an understanding of the gospel without first recognizing his own rebellion against God and the severe consequences uh, justly deserved for our sin as a result. Once we see our own sinfulness and God's just anger and judgment, we're able to embrace the gospel with joy, gratitude, humility, and awe as our only hope for salvation. 
And let's look at the first point, that we need to be saved from our sin. Uh, Martin Luther wrote, a person must confront his own sinfulness and all of its ravaging depths before he can enjoy the comforts of salvation. Um, It's so true. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Transforming Grace, shares an illustration that, um, that goes like this, that when a man is shopping for an engagement ring, one of the things that the jewelry store will do is that they will put the diamond um, up against a dark velvet background in order for the diamond to shimmer most fully. And the doctrine of sins really like that. It's important for us to understand our sinfulness because it really is the, the dark velvet background that unless it's held up behind the diamond, we really can't see the gospel shine as brightly and as brilliantly as it really does. So we need to understand our sinfulness, but that's it's not an end in and of itself or just a doctrine that we understand just in order to make us depressed or anything like that. No, we, we understand our sinfulness more fully And when we do, um, what we see is the diamond of God's grace, the diamond of the gospel, as we turn it around, it'll shimmer brilliantly and more and more brilliantly the more we understand how dark our sin really is. And when we see how dark our sin really is and how evil it is, it'll amaze us that God has had mercy on us and that He has sent His own Son to die for us. It'll mean so much more to us when we realize that we really are undeserving of this awesome gift of God's Son. And so, let's look at sin a little bit more closely with point one in the outline, sin defined. Sin is the personal act of turning away from God and His will, including any violation of His commands. And sin is primarily directed against God. It's rebellion against God's right to rule in our lives. Um, There are two primary ideas in Scripture that express what sin is. The first is missing the mark or falling short, Romans 3.23, of the standard that God has set for us. And also transgression, is, which is rebellion against the standard of God's law. Sin can either be by omission, it's a failure to do what God commands, or it can be a sin of commission, which is doing what God forbids. It can be by word, deed, thought, motive, or attitude. Um, Sin is always fundamentally and primarily against God. David summarizes this so well when he writes in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved wrong, you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Yeah, it's it's against God and God only, ultimately, that we've sinned. And David said that after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had um, Bathsheba's husband killed. So he was guilty of murder, guilty of adultery, And when he repented, and by the mercy of God he repented, um, which is what every one of us need to do in regards to our sin, is to repent and to tell the Lord we are sorry and turn away from our sin. David said, against you and you only have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight. And it's not that David wasn't aware that he had really grieved the Lord um, in relation to hurting Bathsheba and hurting her life and destroying Uriah's life. Um, But it's also just a declaration here that the most significant thing in our sin is that we actually sin against God. And that's the most important thing we need to find ourselves in, is that our sins have been against the Lord. They've hurt Him. He's been grieved. He's been pained by our sin. And we need to understand that, that our sins aren't just fundamentally against human beings. They're most, firstly, they're sins vertically against God. And also, they're sins horizontally against people. But we need to remember that the most important part of our sin is that it really is against God, and and we really do need to be forgiven uh, by Him. R.C. Sproul said that um, every sin that we commit horizontally is first a sin that we commit vertically. It's it's, we sin against God, and, and we also sin simultaneously against others. But the action or the attitude or whatever we do is, 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 is against the Lord. And, and that, that's a very painful reality that we, we need to come to terms with. Uh, point two there, sin is man's universal experience. Um, Adam's sin brought sin and death to all men. Um, and you see that in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Um, it's important to note, this is the doctrine of original sin uh, or of radical corruption. It's, it's that we all, in Adam, are sinners. Um, and David talks about this when he says that in sin my mother conceived me that he knows that he was sinful from birth. He says, surely I was sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me. Um, so he knew that even when he was in his mother's womb, that he was already a sinner, even though he wasn't born yet and didn't actually choose to do anything evil. By nature, David recognized that he was sinful from the time his mother conceived him, that in Adam, he was a sinner, and, and we are sinners in Adam. One theologian said that we're, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Our nature is so radically corrupted by sin under the fall in Adam that we need salvation, uh, not just for the sins that we actually commit in our lifetimes against the Lord, but also... We need forgiveness for the, the sinful nature that we have. We need a new nature. And thank God that we now, who have believed in Christ, have a new nature. And the old is gone, and the new has come. That If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We really need to be made new creations in Christ in order... Um, to escape the radical corruption of the fall and be delivered from it. Point three, men are totally depraved because of sin. Um, It's important to note that in our culture, we live in an age where most people believe in the inherent goodness of man. The Bible, however, does paint a dramatically different picture. It describes man as being totally depraved. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, There's none righteous, no, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. 
They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And total depravity doesn't mean that man is as bad as he possibly could be. You know, in God's common grace, you know, man is not as wicked as he possibly could be. It would be horrible if um, God's common grace and his restraining grace were not at work in the earth. Uh, we see even unbelievers be, be kind and generous, and that's, that's all from God, it, and, and we're so grateful for that. But it does mean that sin's corruption affects man in every part of his being, his mind, emotions, will, and body. There's nothing in man that's been left unaffected by sin. Everything he does, even what would be considered good by human standards, is tainted by sin in some way and needs redemption and needs the forgiveness by the blood of the cross. Point B, uh, the results of this depravity is that we are incapable of pleasing or obeying God and we're uninterested in doing so. Uh, Romans 8 says that the sinful mind um, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It's important to note that that we were born from the time we were born, and we were in Adam as sinners, and then even as we all grew up, um, our sinful mind, you know, before we were saved, is it really is hostile to God, and uh, we didn't seek God by nature. God was so kind to to draw us to himself. And uh, Ephesians 2.1, the passage we read in the opening, it said you were dead in transgressions and sins. And so we don't, we don't simply need sort of a pick-me-up or just a lifeline to pull us up out of the water. We, we need resurrection from death. That's the picture salvation is. We are so radically corrupted in sin and from the fall and our own sins on top of all that, that there really is no hope for us to be saved unless it's through Jesus Christ. Um, point C, we are completely responsible before God for our sins and their consequences. It's so true that, you know, um, Romans fourteen twelve says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, I won't be able to blame anybody on the day of judgment. When I stand before the Lord, when you stand before the Lord, we're going to have to give an account of ourselves to God. And nobody's going to be standing there with us. We're not going to be able to point and, like Adam said to God, he said, you know, it was the woman that you gave me, Lord, after he fell into sin. He blamed it on his wife, and he blamed his sin on God, ultimately, and no, we, we are accountable for the sins that we have committed and the fact that we are sinners. And we have to avoid the temptation to not own the responsibility that we have for our sinfulness. It's a great temptation. We're all tempted to minimize our sin, rationalize our sin, excuse our sin, or even blame shift our sin. And, and we need to recognize that really in the end, all that's going to do is it's going to minimize the need for the cross in our minds. And it's going to make us feel like, yeah, you know, I know God sent His Son to die on the cross for me, but I really didn't need to be died for because I really wasn't that bad of a person. By nature, we tend to really think we're not that bad um, of a person. And, you know, every way of man is right in his own eyes. The wisdom literature in the Old Testament says... 
Proverbs and the way of man always seems right in his own eyes, but we need to look at God's law and and really respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit on this point. Uh, don't you see, you really were, and so was I, in desperate need of a Savior. We are sinners, and um, we willfully chose to sin. We may have been tempted by others, but it was always our choice to sin. No one ever makes me sin. Um, I always choose to sin against the Lord, and I can't blame even those who have tempted me um, for my actions. It's ultimately my choice of sinning and rebelling, rebelling against God, and I need to own up to that, and it's so important for all of us to recognize. Um, let's look at point B, God's holiness and wrath. Um, you know, it's under. C.J. Mahaney says, understanding the benefit of justification or the fact that we've been declared righteous by God through faith in His Son begins with understanding the reality of God's wrath. Unless you're aware of the certainty of wrath, you won't understand the necessity of justification. It's so true. We need to own responsibility for our sin, and then we also need to be aware of the fact that God is holy and He must punish those sins. He must punish and bring justice and holy wrath against those sins. Um, because He's holy. It, it, God is not going to just sweep sin under the carpet. He wouldn't be a good God. He wouldn't be a holy and just God if He just said, Ah, oh, you know, that's okay that you sinned. You, you, know, it's, you really don't need to worry about that. that. He doesn't sweep sin under the carpet. God needed to deal with it. And the way He dealt with it, is he needs to pour out his holy and just wrath on sin and on sinners. God is holy. Um, He is infinitely different and higher than man. Look at Isaiah 40. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. He's morally perfect. He's untainted by evil desire, motive, thought, word, or act. Um, C.J. Mahaney says, God's absolute purity goes beyond mere sinlessness. It is a positive expression of his goodness, not just the absence of sin. God's perfectly righteous. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He just completely fulfilled the law of God in its totality. And um, God is perfectly pure and holy. Point two there, wrath is God's holy response to sin. And... um, John Stott says, the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. It's so important to recognize that. Psalm chapter 5 says, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men. The Lord abhors. You know, many think wrath unjust or sort of unbecoming of God, or many people are very embarrassed to even talk about God's wrath, but this is largely because we underestimate both the extent and the seriousness of sin and also the holiness of God. And when we understand the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God, we see the necessity and the holiness of God's wrath that he's perfectly justified in his wrath. R.W. Dale says it's partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. And it's so true. Psalm 50 says, You thought I was altogether like you. 
And Psalm 36, 2, for in his own eyes, man flatters himself too much to detect or hate his own sin. And God is, as Genesis 18 says, he's the judge of all the earth and he will do right. Um, We need to see that sin's consequences are really a broken relationship with God um, first and the worst of all of sin's consequences and and the ones that follow are after that. But there's a broken relationship with God, like with Adam and Eve in the garden, they they needed to be removed from God's presence because God's holy in His presence. He cannot tolerate sin. Um, Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have separated you from God. And that's true for all of us as sinners. They've separated us from God. Our sins have hidden, your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Um, we're in broken relationship with God. We're under the dominion of Satan and sin. First um, John actually calls us the children of the devil when we uh, are in unrepentant sin. We are enslaved. We're in need of rescue. We're in need of ransom. And um, there's no way for us to break free from being in the bondage to sin. It says in Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath, objects of God's wrath and, and his justified wrath because of our sin. Um, there's there's temporal curses that are upon us because of sin and the fall. All the sorrow, pain, suffering, sweat, tears, strife, sickness, and death we experience were not part of God's original creation. They are here because of the fall, because of sin. And sin is worthy of eternal punishment. The ultimate, final, and irrevocable punishment for all who die in sinful rebellion against God and are unrepentant and have not turned to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin is hell. It's important to note that hell is real. Um, It is in comprehending hell that we comprehend the full magnitude of our sinfulness and God's wrath. Look at that passage from 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Um, The everlasting destruction, it talks about, theologians call it the the eternal conscious torment of the unrepentant sinner in hell. And it's it's so sad that, that sinners refuse to turn to the Lord and have life. Um, And we all... We're in that place. We all need to be saved from God's wrath. And there's only one way that we can be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. And now we turn to the glorious gospel and celebrate the good news of God's saving grace. R.C. Sproul talks about this. This is awesome. Uh, The gospel, the glory of the gospel is this. The one from whom we need to be saved is the one who saved us. And we needed to be saved uh, not firstly from Satan. We needed to be saved from the just and holy wrath of God. Um, and the beauty and the glory of the gospel is the one from whom we need to be saved is the one who saved us. God, rich in mercy, took care of this sin problem that we got ourselves into, and He never needed to do it. It's just such a loving thing that God took it upon Himself to redeem those whom He has created who have rebelled against Him. A.W. Tozer says, 
we must take refuge from God in God. And I, I think that's so powerful. Um, we need to be saved by God's grace, and we need to be saved um, by Jesus. Let's look at the first point, saved by grace. Uh, grace can be defined in many ways. Uh, the most simple definition is God's unmerited favor. This definition points to man's position before God, that there's no merit whatsoever, and there's, in fact, total demerit. Um, it points to God's disposition towards certain people, one of mercy and favor, despite their demerit. And that is a beautiful thing. We are not worthy of anything from God. Actually, what we are worthy of is his wrath. And the good news is is that God hasn't given us what we are worthy of. He is, in, in, in spite of our demerit, in spite of our sin, he has come and he's sent his son to die on the cross. And he took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And that's the glory of God's grace. Uh, we know that God's love motivated his grace toward us. It says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. However, we must never believe that God loved us because we were in any way lovable by nature. Uh, he loved us while we were still sinners. Um, but it's not because of any inherent worthiness in us. No, we, we were unworthy of his love, unworthy of his grace. And, and the fact that he has set his love on us by his grace, it's unexplained and it's unexplainable. It's not due to God seeing that we were a diamond in the rough or seeing that we were, um, you know, better than the rest of mankind. No, we were like the rest of mankind, as Ephesians 2 says, objects of God's wrath. And, and when we understand that, it makes God's grace so amazing to us, doesn't it? John Calvin writes, in a marvelous divine way, he loved us even when he hated us. You might remember that passage I read in the Psalms, um, in Psalm chapter 5, where it talked about that God abhors uh, wicked men. He, he hates those who do wrong. Um, it's so true that God hates sin and, and, um, and, you know, the expression that's often used, you know, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. We need to recognize that He does. He does love the sinner. Um, but He simultaneously hated our sin and also hated, uh, ourselves as sinners. God was opposed to us. We were opposed to Him. We needed to be reconciled. Um, and we need to recognize that this is such a glorious and a mystery, like John Calvin writes, that God loved us even when he hated us. Um, and that's just a beautiful thing for us who are saved. God loved us from before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Christ. And, and uh, we just need to praise him for the mystery of his will, that, that he loved us um, even when we were objects of his wrath. Um, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. So we've been saved by grace, and we also have been saved by Jesus. How can God be gracious? Um, point B, 
and still be just? How can God remain holy and still be merciful? How can God save sinners? Why would he even want to? The answer to these questions are found in the gospel. The gospel is the holy history of Jesus, the good news about what he's done to save us from our sins and God's wrath. The Apostle Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Uh, What he did and why it saves us is the gospel. The gospel includes Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and forthcoming return. And let's look first at his birth um, in John 1.1 and then in John 1.14, the Bible says that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is the miracle of the incarnation that we celebrate every Christmas, that God became one of us. He took on human flesh and was tempted in every way as we are, and yet was without sin. And the fact that God came at all, the fact that God sent His Son for us, and to take one flesh to come and rescue us. Oh, it's it's a glorious mystery and miracle. And I'm so thankful for what he's done, aren't you? Matthew 1, 20 and 21 says that the purpose that Jesus came for was to save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus was born. He came to save his people from their sins. Um, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 in a beautiful passage um, says that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, in being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. That That's the incarnation. God made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He took on flesh. And in verse 8 it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself. He became one of us. And... and my friend, he did that because of his great love for you. He came and became one of us so that he might come and rescue us and save us from our sin, to save us from the holy and just wrath of God himself. Um, praise be to the Lord for that. You know, it was so costly for God to send his son, his only son, to die. We need to make sure we never take any of this for granted. You know, God was not obligated to come and die for us and love us like he has. He he was uh, only obligated once he had created us and we had rebelled in our sin to pour out justice and wrath against our sin. And, and uh, in his great love, God is a God of redemption and God is a God who saves sinners. And that is just awesome in God's character. And praise you, Lord, for being the way you are. Um. That quote by Anselm, I'd encourage you to read that. Um, let's move to point two. Jesus' perfect sinless life. His birth is the good news. Also, his perfect sinless life is uh, part of the gospel as well. Theologians call this the, the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ where Christ during his life fulfilled the law of God in our place. At every point where we have sinned and we have failed, Jesus was victorious. And his righteousness that he earned in his sinless life is the very righteousness that God chooses to credit to us in our justification through believing in his Son. We receive the perfect righteousness of Christ, the 
righteousness of Christ is clothed over us and we are clothed in it through faith and by grace. And I'm so thankful for that, that he was, as First Peter 1, 19 says, a lamb without blemish or defect. And he died. He went as a lamb to the slaughter on the cross to die for us, for our sins, to bring us to God so that we might be declared righteous. And we, the unholy ones, the unrighteous, the ungodly ones, might be declared righteous in His sight and might be able to stand before God in all of His holiness, not with our own righteousness or our own merit, but by the grace of God, if we believe in Christ, we can stand before God with the merits of His Son, all because Christ was obedient perfectly to the law of God. He fulfilled the law in His life and He obeyed God and laid His life down on the cross in perfect obedience and submission to His will. Thank you so much, Jesus. You know, it's important to note that Jesus not only died for us, but He also lived for us. And His life is our salvation, as well as His death being our salvation. Let's look at point three, at His death. This is the heart of the Gospel, the death of Christ. It's the center point of human history. All that comes before it looks forward and prepares for it. All that comes after looks back and proceeds from the cross. It's the most important and glorious event in redemptive history. And we as a church never tire to keep the doctrine of the cross of Christ at the center of everything in accordance with 1 Corinthians 2.2 where the Word of God says, I desire to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We want to constantly keep the good news of the cross in front of our gaze and never move on from the cross of Christ being just central in our lives as Christians. We don't want to remove and put out to the periphery what God has placed in the center. And let us really strive together to keep the cross in our gaze at all times so that we might cherish God's saving work and and be reminded of His love for us. The cross is the grounds upon which God saves us. Its key concept is satisfaction through substitution. God satisfied His righteous and holy wrath and justice through giving up His own Son as a substitute for us, the sinner. Christ took the place of sinners on the cross and actually received in His body the wrath that we deserved for our sins. You see that in 1 Peter 2.24 in that passage. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Jesus' death was substitutionary in nature. He died on our behalf, receiving the legal penalty for our sins and satisfying God's righteous wrath toward us. Oh, praise God for that. I'm going to quote by P.T. Forsyth. It says, How then can God express His holiness without consuming us and His love without condoning our sins? How can God satisfy His holy love? How can He save us and satisfy Himself simultaneously? We reply at this point only that in order to satisfy Himself, 
He sacrificed, indeed substituted himself for us. What amazing, amazing love. I'm so thankful for Christ's death on the cross. Look at CJ's quote. What what was the primary purpose of the cross? It was there that Jesus satisfied the fierce and holy wrath of Almighty God, which we would otherwise have experienced. God's accumulated and justified anger fell not on us, who deserved it, but on His Son. Jesus didn't just save us from our sin. He saved us from God Himself. Thank you so much, Lord. Look at point B there. Jesus' death provided atonement for us. Atonement is the ransom price that covers an offense, not by sweeping it out of sight, but by making an equivalent payment so that the offense has been actually and exactly paid for. It removes an offense so as to bring the offender, us, and the offended, God, together. And that is the doctrine of reconciliation, that God, through the cross, reconciled us to himself. And and he did that when he presented Jesus, as Romans 3, 25 and 26 says, he presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And I love how it talks about in Colossians 1.20 that through Christ, God reconciled to himself all things. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Making peace through his blood shed on the cross. John Stott says, At the cross in holy love, God through Christ paid the full penalty of our disobedience himself. He bore the judgment we deserve in order to bring us the forgiveness we do not deserve. On the cross, divine mercy and justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. God's holy love was satisfied. Thank you, God. Let's look at his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is also just a beautiful, beautiful aspect of the gospel. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus' death was an acceptable and effective sacrifice on our behalf. Death is the penalty for sin, and if death is overcome, then sin too must be overcome. In Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 4.25 says, the resurrection is so important in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But the good news is, as Colossians 2.15 says, that through the resurrection, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and and was raised to life by the Father for our justification. The resurrection is connected to our justification, that we are declared righteous by God. And the resurrection is proof that God has indeed declared us righteous with His Son's perfect righteousness. And the resurrection proves that. And we can be assured that we really are declared righteous and are righteous and holy in His sight now. 
because God, with an exclamation point, raised his son up from the dead. That proves to us that we are no longer in our sins and that our faith isn't futile. But, oh, oh, it is so, so vital and precious and effective. We have the righteousness of Christ. We have the forgiveness of Christ, the cleansing of Christ's blood, all because we can look and see that Christ has been raised. And finally, the, the final aspect of the gospel that we want to look at is, is also um, seen in both his ascension and also in Christ's return. You know, part of the good news of the gospel is, is that Christ ascended. And you think at first glance, you know, why is the ascension such good news? Well, what it means is that Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God on his throne. He reigns. Jesus is not in the grave as a symbol of defeat. He is ruling and reigning right now, awaiting the word from the Father to send him to come back. And when when Jesus receives that word from the Father to go, he's going to return in power. It says that Jesus, after he had finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The ascension is so powerful and glorious because whenever we sit down, what that means is we sit down after our work has been done. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. That means that the work of atonement, the work of salvation has been done fully by me. And anybody who believes in Jesus they can have full confidence that they are completely and totally saved because Jesus, in fact, did die on the cross for their sins. And he said, it is finished. The work of atonement is done. There's nothing left for us to need to earn before God when we believe in Jesus. We can be fully assured that when we trust in Christ and in his blood and in his righteousness, that the work of salvation is completely done Because Jesus ascended and he sat down. His work was completed. He said, it is finished. And right now he rules and reigns over this world. And we can also take confidence that he is in control. He reigns. He rules over all things. And he's going to return someday soon. And that's something we should be so excited about as Christians. Ephesians 1, 19-23, talking about the ascension, says that God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So God has placed all things under his feet. Jesus rules and reigns. And we also know that Jesus is going to return someday soon. And the Bible, in, in its spirit, in the New Testament, is, come Lord Jesus. You know, we should be looking forward in anticipation to the return of Jesus Christ and longing for His appearing and looking forward to and living in such a way as to speed His coming, the Scriptures say, to be urgently living for the Lord, to be awake, to be alert, to be living for Him in anticipation so that we can uh, just be ready on that day when He returns. I'm so looking forward to that day, aren't you? Matthew 24, 30-31 talks about that day. And at that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. 
They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And Revelation 21, 3 and 4 talks about where we're going. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Thank you so much, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Thank you so much for the glorious gospel. Thank you that you reign, that you rule, and that you're going to return real soon. We love you, and we look forward to your return. Thank you for overcoming our sin and absorbing and exhausting your Father's wrath. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for listening to session two and going through it in your outline. Praise God for the glorious work that he's done. I can't wait to go through session three with you. God bless you, and looking forward to session three.